Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. In this week's Torah portion, Parshat Vayeshev, we meet for the first time Joseph. And the very first impression of him that we get in the Torah, he manages to convince all of his brothers to want to murder him. Joseph is entitled and spoiled, and at least in this part of his life, is not a very likable guy. As if his brothers didn't already hate him enough due to their father Jacob's favoritism of him, One day, we read that Joseph told all his brothers about a dream he had in which the sun and the moon and 11 stars, by the way, Joseph had 11 brothers, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bowed down to him. Now, my advice to Joseph, if I could talk to him, is if you have a dream like that, maybe keep it to yourself. But this is the last straw for the brothers who decided to kill him once they got him alone and away from home. But just before they are about to kill him, Reuben suggests, his brother Reuben, oldest brother, suggests that instead they throw him in a pit and just leave leave him there alone so that they don't have to do the dirty work of killing him by their own hand. So they do that. They leave him in a pit. And then in a truly, truly striking act of callousness, all the brothers sit down to eat a leisurely lunch. Now, all of the brothers, except for Reuben, seem intent on killing Joseph or at least letting him die in that pit. But it's at this point, at this moment, that Judah has an idea. A band of traitors started to walk towards them, and Judah said to his brothers, I'm quoting from the Torah, what do we gain by killing our brother and covering up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but not let us do away with him ourselves. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed, and when the Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph to Egypt. Now, some Some medieval commentators condemn Judah for this act, reading it simply as a desire to profit from his own brother's life. But I think that the Peshat, the the simple reading of the text, leads to a different interpretation. Judah must have known that his brothers were intent on getting rid of Joseph, one way or another. If he had suggested that they just pull him out of the pit and bring him back home to Jacob, they would have laughed him off. They would have left him in the pit or just ended the thing right then and there and killed Joseph themselves. It seems clear that Judah was not trying to profit off of Joseph. Uh, One of the commentators says that at that time, um, I guess we have a few thousand years of inflation since, but 20 pieces of silver could just buy one pair of shoes for each of them. So they weren't making a ton of money. It seems clear that profit wasn't his motive, but saving Joseph was. 
And even though selling him into slavery was a terrible solution, a terrible outcome, it at least saved his life. It was not ideal, but it was progress. And what an important lesson for us today. The perfect is the enemy of the good. That an insistence on achieving a supposed ideal or perfection stops us from making very real progress in the meantime. On the most divisive issues of our time, environmental and climate policy, immigration reform, abortion, the loudest voices on both sides seem intent on maximalist policies that would achieve their ideal position. And in partisan primaries, moderation and compromise are punished at the ballot box. Now, of course, we as Jews, we want to repair the world, to bring about the messianic visions of justice and equality and peace. But Judah, the, our namesake as Jews from Judah, Judah teaches us that real progress is often incremental. If he had insisted on freeing Joseph and singing Kumbaya together, we all know how that would have turned out. There was enough hatred to make that impossible. So incremental progress was the best that he could do. And yet it was truly progress. And the biggest proof case for the power of incremental progress in a generation, in my lifetime, came just this week as Congress passed the Respect for Marriage Act. Less than 30 years ago, in 1996, only 27% of Americans supported same-sex marriage. Even as late, even as recent as 2008, both Democratic presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, said in a debate that they were both opposed to same-sex marriage. Yet earlier this year, in 2022, a whopping 71% of Americans support it. A majority of both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, are in favor of same-sex marriage. Now, how did such a radical shift in our culture occur in such a relatively short amount of time? One of the first conservatives, the first conservatives to call for marriage equality, the writer and public intellectual Andrew Sullivan, he argued that it was precisely because the incremental nature of this campaign that they were able to change so many minds so quickly. He said that by not insisting his opponents were immoral, by always being willing to show up for debates and conversations, by helping people of all backgrounds to see that, with their, that within their own family, within their friend group, that they had brothers or sisters or children who are gay, that each one of us, if we are not gay ourselves, has someone we love who is. He said that the fact that activists knocked on doors and went into people's homes and told their personal stories, it wasn't a, an, an immediate effect. Stories, listening, talking, it takes time. But the fact that they were willing over all these years to be out and to be in conversation with people showed convinced 
so many millions of Americans that the, each person who is made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God, whether gay or straight, is deserving of the same rights as all Americans. It didn't happen overnight, but that slow incremental change did change minds. In Sullivan's words, by making arguments in the public sphere and by slowly but surely changing people's minds and thereby changing laws, what we did was open our hearts and made ourselves vulnerable. By listening and being vulnerable, that is how he says that the change happened. Progress did not happen overnight, said Sullivan, but it ultimately did happen because the activists and just the regular people were willing to take the time to persuade. That's, that's the key part, to persuade the other side. They didn't give up when change did not come immediately, but they also didn't demonize their opponents. They were willing to listen and to be listened to, and they fought for incremental progress. Martin Luther King, he famously said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And as Jews, it is, of course, our sacred responsibility to bend that arc, to work towards justice. But Judaism is also a religion of realism. In Pirkei Avot, our earliest ethical text, Rabbi Tarfon teaches, Lo alecha hamlecha ligmor, velo ata ben chorin lahivatel mimena. It is not your duty to finish the work of repairing the world. It's not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. Even if we can't fix all the world's problems overnight, we still must try to make a difference. Little by little, bit by bit, that is how the change will come. That is Judah's lesson, and that is our task as Jews. Can you hear our May it be God's will. Shabbat shalom.